The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out daily space news and mission deep dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com, and join the space discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also send us a tweet at SpexCast or send an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. All right, so let's begin this episode by talking about Virgin Galactic. On December 13th of 2018, Virgin Galactic's Spaceship 2 completed its first flight into outer space. And uh, this is Virgin Galactic's second vehicle on this Spaceship 2 platform. It's called VSS Unity. And it's, of course, a rocket-powered lifting body designed to carry two pilots and up to six passengers on a suborbital flight over the Kármán line. So this success has been a long time coming. And, of course, it's following the, the fatal test flight of VSS Enterprise in 2014. Yeah, so I think the story of Virgin Galactic is really one of delayed gratification. Uh, it was founded in 2004, kind of off the heels of the Ansari X Prize, where Spaceship One, the predecessor, which was, for all intents and purposes, a experimental rocket plane, not unlike the X-15 from the 1960s, um, but it, it kind of gave hope to the commercial space sector that commercial companies could put people in outer space. But now in 2019, 15 years after that, still we don't have that kind of regular suborbital tourism that they were talking about all the way back then. But to see Spaceship 2 finally reach that milestone is really, I think, cathartic for a lot of the people who have who were there watching in 2004 and who were promised that this would soon become a reality and who have been there for the failures and challenges and setbacks Virgin Galactic's had to overcome to get to this point again. Right. And all the way back in 2004 with Spaceship One, um, like you mentioned, it, it was kind of a breakthrough um, for private space. Um, Spaceship One was privately funded by uh, the late Paul Allen, and it was actually the first private aircraft to go supersonic. So it was, it was before um, private space companies really had a solid foothold in the industry. Um, so, you know, here we are um, almost two decades later. Um, it's really great to see that that vision is finally coming to fruition. And it's also interesting that this coincides with um, some recent test flights for New Shepard, Blue Origins, space tourism platform. So now, right as they're coming on the scene, they're also being met with competition. Yeah, it's really interesting because Virgin Galactic has kind of been the poster child for commercial space tourism. But Blue Origin in the past couple of years has really become kind of a, a competitor. It's the same market, a relatively similar business model where they take paying customers on a short suborbital trip but completely different engineering approaches. It's really interesting because given the long history and development cycle Virgin Galactic's gone through, it really shows the challenges and trade-offs between winged reusable vehicles and vertical takeoff, vertical landing reusable vehicles. The goal in both cases is to take civilians, untrained, everyday people 
across the Kármán line and into what is technically space, you know, see the curvature of the Earth, experience, you know, a little bit of free fall microgravity sensations um, and come back down. So Blue Origin's New Shepard and Virgin Galactic's uh, Spaceship Two, um, Virgin Galactic is offering right now seats for $250,000 a piece, right? But Blue Origin's uh, Blue Origin tickets on New Shepard are also being offered around two hundred dollars to 300000 uh, dollars per seat. So about the same price, right? Those are speculative prices. I think one of the big cultural differences is, again, Virgin Galactic's been selling tickets for 10 plus years. Right. Blue Origin has been hinting that the first flights might be in 2019, but they're still not selling tickets. So it's it's two very different company philosophies and two different architectures. So there's a lot of very sharp contrast between the two companies that are trying to do basically the same thing and provide a very similar service. Right. So for me as a customer, let's say I have, you know, $600,000 to spend on whatever I want and I want to go to space twice. Do you think it would be worth it for people to experience both the horizontal takeoff, um, you know, uh, using an airplane assisted then rocket power descent with Virgin Galactic? And a vertical takeoff, vertical landing, where you go up on a rocket, come down uh, by parachute in the capsule? Do you think it's worth doing both? Or do you think each person is likely to only buy one ticket? Is it going to be Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic? I don't know how big of the market's going to be for repeat customers. But I do say in the hypothetical sense, if you could try both, that there is definitely value in both. Just because the experience is going to be so, so dramatically different. Um, with a capsule launch, you're going to have a lot of anticipation on the pad during the fueling. Um, a very Both have very short boost phases. With new Shepard and Blue Origin, you're going to f- experience an actual rocket launch. You're going from zero to, to space in only a couple minutes. And you also get a very traditional capsule style landing with the parachute deployments. Uh, they have a um, deceleration solid motor. So there's just a lot of very harsh dynamic environments um, that are going to require you to be, I would, I don't want to kind of speculate on physical requirements or training requirements, but it's going to be a more dynamic, probably harsher experience. With Virgin Galactic and their space plane concept, the overall experience is going to be much longer, right? Because you're going to have the takeoff from a normal runway on the mothership uh, to get to cruising altitude. Then you're going to have the release and your rocket-powered flight. Both are going to offer that uh, edge of space, curvature of the earth feeling, uh, as well as moments of weightlessness during the peak arc. Uh, but then there's also a very extensive re-entry and landing and uh, process for Virgin Galactic. So I think they're going to be very different experiences. Um, I think both are worthwhile, um, just from an experience point of view. Um, financially, uh, it's definitely not the cheapest per minute activity you can get. But again, it's going to be a one of a kind experience that you can't get through any other activity, any other company. And so there's one more thing that I wanted to bring up here regarding these two now competitors, uh, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic. Both are doing space tourism, but Blue Origin um, is supporting its business ventures by also manufacturing BE4, which is a Methalox rocket engine for the United Launch Alliance. So it's the another revenue stream for them. Well, Virgin Galactic, uh, you know, 
Virgin Orbit is a separate entity that's providing orbital launch services. They're both Virgin, but they're not quite the same. So do you think Virgin Galactic is at a disadvantage for, um, as of right now, having space tourism as its only revenue stream that we can that we can tell right now? I wouldn't say the market niche is a disadvantage. I think the biggest disadvantage Virgin Galactic has is that while Richard Branson is a very wealthy man, Jeff Bezos is the wealthiest man. Uh, and Blue Origin's operations have been entirely funded by Jeff Bezos selling his stock and putting that cash into the company. Uh, and I don't think Virgin Galactic is at that point to have basically unlimited growth unlimited investments in new facilities, technology, R&D. And that definitely comes down to a difference in culture. I think Blue Origin in recent times has been a rocket company first. They're focusing on propulsion. They've had a series of kind of propulsion test vehicles doing short hops. New Shepard is kind of their first. New Shepard is kind of their first production rocket vehicle that they have. While Virgin Galactic has been this kind of tourism company first, and you know, there's some interesting anecdotes from the Virgin Galactic uh, CEO, George Whitesides, where they used to be, at their founding, a marketing company trying to sell this idea to people to build up the momentum and capital, and they've had to build out their engineering team, where the new Blue Origin that does serious engineering work, detached from its think tank origins, has been kind of a bend metal test things, engineering company. But again, both are very close. And I think now they're kind of focusing in. I would say that with Blue Origin, if New Shepard doesn't take off or they have a limited pool, say they do 100 flights and that's it, Blue Origin will continue. With Virgin Galactic, it's going to be a lot harder if that market doesn't stabilize and, and continue the company. All right. So let's move on to the next topic. So related to Virgin Galactic uh, and on the heels of this win earlier this year, this winter, Virgin Galactic and SpaceX both announced layoffs affecting significant portions of their respective workforces. Virgin Galactic laid off about 40 employees. SpaceX uh, laid off about 10% of its workforce, uh, which adds up to 600 employees. So the question I'd like to open to discussion here is, is this a sign of an industry turn or just the way things go maturing of these spaceflight development companies um, as they sort of hit their milestones and see what needs to change in their processes and development? I think it's actually a combination of factors. Um, a lot of people have been talking about a space industry kind of downturn with the number of launches, less satellites being ordered, less launches being ordered. However, when you look at startups that are in heavy engineering mode, like Electron, like Vector, they're hiring and they're growing and they're building because they have to develop the technology. So I think if you're a company that needs to develop technology ASAP to get to a position to provide a service, then the market changing doesn't really affect you. But with SpaceX, they do a ton of R&D, but they also have their mainline service. Yeah. And, you know, we've heard rumors of that the people being laid off are Falcon 9 staff. So um, Falcon 9 has reached a point where, you know, Block 5 is intended to be their very reusable booster, uh, more boosters being reused, not having to build as many. It's a very mature design state. 
And so rather than going full bore on research and development, they're able to lean out their processes, streamline things. I also think SpaceX is very sensitive to cost. Uh, they have some of the lowest launch costs in the market. And that cost not only has to pay for producing the vehicle and providing the launch service, but it also has to be amortized over all the R&D, all the salaries of the entire company. Um, a very common anecdote with regards to SpaceX is their tendency to bring things in-house instead of outsourcing it, where if they can pay engineers to develop a solution once in-house and then build it, they can be much cheaper than consistently going to a contract manufacturer or someone else. I think that same philosophy might be behind some of these layoffs where if you need to produce 20, 30 rocket cores per year to handle your manifest, then you have to have the manpower to produce that volume. You have to produce all these pairs of fairings. And you see SpaceX try to reduce that cost. Reusable rockets, being able to reuse cores twice, three times, 10 times, 100 times, reduces the amount of Falcon 9 first stages you need to build. And their attempts at fairing recovery reduce the number of fairings you have to build. So they're not one to throw cash and manpower at a problem to overcome it. So I do think the general philosophy has just been kind of leaning down the company. When you have such ambitious R&D projects where the we're not talking about millions of dollars or tens of millions, but it's hundred millions or billions of dollars over years and years. If you can save 5% on payroll over half a decade, that might be the make or break difference, right? Where if you don't have a cost plus contract for research and development where you have this much money and if you go 5% over, the company collapses or the project has to end, that kind of serious cost cutting has to happen, unfortunately. That, that makes sense for, for SpaceX to lean out their workforce. But Virgin Galactic? Yeah, the, the Virgin Galactic layoffs are interesting because it's also a transition between R&D and operations, right? Right. You have to have the engineers and you have to have the technicians to design the hardware, build the hardware, test the hardware, but Virgin Galactic is never going to be a high volume rocket manufacturer. I think they have right. three Spaceship Two vehicles planned to be built. And so they don't need to have a functioning assembly line that's going to be running for the next five, 10 years to run the business. With SpaceX, there are certain things that are still consumable. With Virgin Galactic, when you have everything be fully reusable, the economies of scale are completely non-existent. Mm -hmm. And so as part of the official statement from Virgin Galactic, they mentioned the transition from testing to operations. Right. So let's move on to our third topic here. Uh, it's another significant change to another company. Stratalaunch has canceled their air-assisted launcher concepts following the uh, recent death of Paul Allen, their founder and uh, primary investor. Stratalaunch is the company that has the ginormous airplane, like the biggest airplane ever, right? They, <laughs> they carry big rockets underneath it, um, which they fly it up to a high altitude, and then the rocket does the last mile to get it up into low Earth orbit. So Stratalaunch had uh, not too long ago announced plans to expand um, their capabilities and build their own rockets to do that last mile to orbit where three different sizes to carry three different uh, payload capacities. But now they're apparently sizing back and 
now Stratolaunch is only going to be carrying Pegasus XL launch vehicles. Yeah, this news is is very interesting because I really don't see a path forward for the company with Pegasus XL. Uh, for reference, that rocket is has been in operation and it flies via Northrop Grumman Space Systems. There's been a couple of mergers uh, a few times a year. And they have their own dedicated uh, retrofitted airliner, an L-1011, that they use for flights. And to take that same rocket uh, and fly it on a new carrier aircraft, which is a one-of-a-kind, most likely has higher operating costs, doesn't really address the main sticking point with Pegasus, which is its very high cost for amount of payload delivered. And so there was a chance that Strata Launch's in-house rockets would have been cheaper. They could have used newer manufacturing methods or some some kind of me- mechanism to be cheaper and to to have an advantage in the launch market. But just to have a new plane to launch Pegasus, I don't see it making a lot of sense. Right. And Strata Launch had a lot of exciting designs. They had a medium launch vehicle, which was uh, a standard liquid core booster. They had a heavy version, kind of borrowing from SpaceX with two strap-on boosters with a common core. And they even had a far-out concept for a reusable space plane, so a rocket-powered space plane that could have carried people at some point. And five months ago, they were talking about all of their achievements working with propulsion development, testing out pre-burners, building their own engines in-house. None of that transfers over to a Pegasus XL-only launch market. So um, it's very strange news. I, I think... The company's kind of in a, a limbo state for yeah, now, definitely, uh, until they figure out what the next step is. Those recently announced launch vehicles that you just mentioned, uh, those make sense as well. I think they make a lot of sense for Strata Launch, but uh, since they're announcing that they're canceling those programs, that says to me that those concepts were not far enough along in their development. It, it concerns me a little bit that they don't have uh, as much traction with those things that make a lot of sense. Do you know what I mean? I think what might have happened in the decision room is we have this company that had been this money pit. What's, what is the option that can get us revenue in the next year or two? And flying a Pegasus XL launch would get you that revenue. Um, it doesn't really make sense in a five-year, 10-year, 15-year business model. But as something that was really kind of a pet project of Paul Allen, you know, it's really hard to kind of come into that and start making traditionally logical financial decisions. Right. Now, Strata Launch has had kind of a long history of either partnering with other companies or now building these things in-house and now kind of outsourcing to Northrop Grumman where SpaceX, uh, years and years ago, was tapped to build a modified version of Falcon to fly on Strata Launch. And what I could see is kind of a reevaluation of that, not with SpaceX, but with a small sat launcher company like Electron or Vector. Uh, Vector's whole kind of niche is rapid launch from a variety of launch sites. And air launching a rocket is not trivial in any means. But like that would kind of fit into their company philosophy mm-hmm. where being able to air launch, can avoid weather, can choose your inclination to launch. So that's a possibility. But at this point, it doesn't look like there's a lot of direction 
coming out of Strata launch. Right. So there is potential for a new course change three months from now, six months from now, but it's really up in the air. Right. Agreed. All right, TJ, why don't you bring us into um, our next topic? Yeah, so probably the most, uh, I don't want to talk crazy. Flashy, uh, bright, and shiny. The f- yes, the flashiest bit of news we have, and one that's been going on for mo- several months now with weekly or daily updates, has been the SpaceX BFR, now renamed to Starship, test vehicle in McGregor, Texas. So there's been a ton of engineering changes, a ton of business plan changes, all leading into a basically steel water tower being built out in a field that Elon Musk and SpaceX promise will be the stepping stone to moon and Mars rockets. Right. And so it's, it's a lot to unpack and there's a lot of very small changes and very large changes that have happened to the entire SpaceX Mars program in the last month and a half. Right. Not that long ago, SpaceX unveiled their, let's say, third iteration of BFR at their um, Dear Moon press conference when they announced that they would be taking civilians at a flyby around the moon on this new vehicle. And um, the way that version of it looked was very different than the two previous International Astronautical Congress presentations that Elon gave years prior. And so that took me back. But now from Elon's Twitter, we're seeing these drastic design changes, uh, one of which the most striking is that this Starship or the upper stage that would carry cargo or passengers is being changed from a carbon composite fuselage to stainless steel. And as Elon puts it, it's counterintuitive. Uh, but Elon's been really promoting this as a design that does, in fact, make sense not only for manufacturing, but technologically and even business sense. And uh, I'm skeptical, you know, I'm hesitant, but, you know, we can, let's go through it. Let's go through it. So, yes, yeah, so the, the sales pitch is really compelling, um, and it's pretty much a list of all pros. And whenever you hear something that is all positive, no negatives, you have to immediately be skeptical. So we've talked about carbon composites many times on the show and how with reusable vehicles, you can now invest more in the structure to eke out performance gains because you can amortize that cost over many flights. However, stainless steel is a shift in a different direction. It's a much cheaper material. It's easier to work with, and the thermal properties are probably the most interesting, where SpaceX has been kind of leading uh, production heat shields with their Pika-X proprietary heat shield that they use for Cargo Dragon, now Crew Dragon. They have uh, at least three versions they've announced, and uh, the BFR ITS design would have used a newer version of Pika for its protection. But the new Starship design basically throws all of that out. Instead of having any ablative heat shield, which keeps a high temperature region away from a relatively low temperature region, which is carbon composite, which is not heat tolerant, you let the physical structure heat up. And with stainless steel, theoretically, it could radiate all that heat away passively. And for the highest heat areas, active film cooling where 
propellant could be pushed through tiny little holes and evaporate could handle the rest of the heat load, which is something that has never never been used for a human-rated heat shield ever. Right. I mean, technologically speaking, if you just look at the math, you just look at the science, do some thermal calculations and stuff, is this possible? Probably, yeah. You know, that's why it's starting to look good. It's never been proposed before for a human-rated spacecraft. That is an immediate strike for me as, you know, cause to be skeptical. Elon is known to, you know, not care about what's been done before because why not try? And that makes a lot of sense to me as well. But, you know, I I really want to see not just the, the glamour of it. You know, I, I don't care as much uh, for the hopper to go up and come back down um, as I do for seeing these microperforated stainless steel actively cooled regions of the spacecraft that don't have a heat shield at all. They're just uh, cooled and, and directly exposed to the atmosphere. Um, I want to see that in action. Show me, show me that. Yeah, that, that's what's important to me. What makes me even more skeptical is that we're hearing design changes, not just unveils of designs or, or teasers, but what it would seem to be drastic, in some cases, shifts from previous stances being announced on the fly. Yeah, and I think that's probably the biggest, I wouldn't say it's a red flag, but this, the, the biggest shock was for years, carbon composite has been kind of uh, presented as the solution to scaling up and making these vehicles efficient enough and large enough to transport useful amounts of material to Mars. And if you look at the actual architectural design of the, the space system for starships, if you look at the starship space transportation architecture, it's not radically different than BFR or ITS were, but the engineering implementation of that is so radically different where all of the development into heat shield technology, into carbon composites, the test tanks they've made, the uh, carbon composite mandrels that they had produced, all of that doesn't apply to this new design. And so... If you, if you had kind of your risk tree where it's like, what are, the, what are the things that are the highest risk? SpaceX have been paying that down by doing incremental development for, for decades. And that kind of swaps those out to new unknown challenges that don't have a lot of prior art and have no risk mitigation put in place. Wait, wait. So, so I, I'd have to argue that. Okay, so stainless steel um, is kind of a known quantity that... Metallurgists have been working with stainless steel for a long time, way longer than carbon composites. In an interview with Popular Mechanics, where Elon has outlined his rationale for going to stainless steel, he makes some pretty convincing arguments here. It's like stainless steel, this might be a new type of alloy developed by SpaceX employees, uh, but it's fundamentally stainless steel. We know how to work with it. You know, it's very, very common. It's easier to work with than carbon composites, and it's cheaper. So for those reasons, you can accelerate the timeline, uh, reduce some development costs, some challenges that might have come up with working with carbon composites that are avoided altogether because it's stainless steel. So would you say that switching to stainless steel would be a risk mitigation over continuing development with carbon composites? From a material science standpoint, definitely is. Uh, You mentioned the cost where it's two orders of magnitude cheaper to use stainless steel. It's much easier to procure. 
However, the passively radiated heat shield and then actively film-cooled heat shield are things that we've not seen on a production space vehicle before and not seen as something this large and at this scale. And so it really is kind of an interesting trade-off. I think there are other factors in play besides just pure development risk and how mature existing technologies are. I think the number one driver is speed and cost of iterations. When you have to be responsible entirely for every uh, R&D dollar and every R&D iteration, changes to a design that make those cheaper and faster can have knock-on benefits that could mean the success or failure of the project. Mm. Carbon composite might have been uh, more efficient, might have been uh, more ideal for the specific application. But if it meant that prototypes had to take a year and a half to build instead of three months to build, that means the number of iterations you can get in a five-year development timeline is dramatically reduced. Right. And so I think changing the design from the materials perspective has introduced a lot of new risk, but I think they've put themselves in a position to catch back up to where they were and exceed it far quicker. And that's what we saw with the Starship Hopper, basically going from a cylinder out in a field to something that looked identical to their renders in less than a month. Um, Now there were some weather-related issues on that, but the speed at which they were able to build it, the speed at which they're repairing it, is completely different to what a carbon composite-based test vehicle might have looked like. Here's another thing, though, uh, and something that I'm not so clear on, so maybe you can help me out. Starship seems like stainless steel could be a good direction. But for the BFR booster, the tank of uh, Methalox, the thing that's going to go up, detach, and then return to the launch site and be refueled again, is that going to be stainless steel? Because that booster make, being stainless steel doesn't make sense to me because it won't have to go through re- re-entry. The only benefit you'll get from um, making that out of stainless steel is this easier to work with and cheaper per kilogram. But you're not going to be throwing that away. You're not going to be subjecting that to re-entry heating. You're not going to be you know, using as a lifting body and doing all these things. So the booster using these carbon fiber tanks that they've been developing, you know, that still makes sense. So Elon on Twitter confirmed that the uh, Starship Super Heavy, which is the booster component, would also be made of stainless steel. But I do agree with you that from an efficiency standpoint, carbon composite makes a lot of sense. And a lot of the engineering reasons for switching to stainless steel don't necessarily apply to the booster. But again, I think it comes down to manufacturing, where if you have the tooling in place, the manufacturing in place, and the assembly line in place to be building stainless steel tank sections of a certain diameter to build the Starship and then eventually build the booster, rather than having two completely separate manufacturing lines with different materials, different technology, specialists that have to know the materials they're working with, Mm -hmm. you can share those components. Right. So from a pure optimization standpoint, I think carbon composite is still a better choice for a first stage. But from a manufacturing standpoint, it does make a lot of sense to keep those as common as possible. Right now, Falcon 9 cores are made out of aluminum. And if you were going to have a carbon composite tank, that's entirely 
new technology to make that assembly line. Whereas I feel like the, the existing process, the existing manufacturing assembly line, if you will, is much more easily transferred to be stainless steel as well. Exactly. Like with Falcon 9, a first stage and a second stage start out through a lot of the very similar processes. If you look at the carbon composite parts of a Falcon 9, the inner stage and the fairings, they have their own, a lot of dedicated factory space. And for at least for the fairings are a, a choke point uh, in the production process because it takes so long to to build and certify those. Right. So I think that's a experience SpaceX is familiar with that they might be bringing over to their next generation of rocket. Any talk about Starship in any long-term capacity is not that useful because SpaceX and Elon Musk have proven that they're willing to change plans so radically that we really shouldn't count on 2020, 2021 seeing the exact Starship that they are showing now. It's a very rapidly evolving situation. Uh, I think they're in a very reactive mode where they're trying to get things done as fast as possible. I think they're very open to change, yeah. uh, which is exciting from a Enthusiast. onlooker's perspective. Yeah, onlooker. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about something that hasn't changed as much and something that I'm just as cautiously excited about, and that's uh, Raptor. Raptor is SpaceX's next rocket engine. Um, it's fueled by methane and liquid oxygen. A full-scale, what Elon calls the flight engine for their hopper, has been tested in McGregor, Texas. It looks beautiful. <laughs> I love shock diamonds. But um, let's take a look at this. Raptor, you know, we've ha- seen some speculative performance metrics that we've been kind of throwing around for a while. Now we've seen uh, the subscale engine being tested uh, up to two years ago now. And now we're finally seeing a full-scale engine. And it's only been fired that we know of at, quote, 60% power, according to Elon. Yeah, Raptor's interesting because the main principles of its design haven't changed. It's the little details that have varied widely over time. So it's complete opposite of Starship and, and BFR. And so uh, there was a test firing of the first flight-ready Raptor. It may never go into space. It's destined for the Starship Hopper in Texas. And the target for that design is 300 bar and 200 metric tons of force. And so while the SpaceX engine was tested at about 60% power, SpaceX measured it at 116 metric tons of force and 170 bar of chamber pressure, which are very impressive stats. On their own? Oh, yeah. And, you know, that kind of lines up with their target where they're going for 200 uh, metric tons of thrust. And if you look into the whole package, is that something very interesting. A Raptor is extremely compact, and that ties into the SpaceX philosophy of clustering engines. A full-size Starship will have seven Raptors, and the Super Heavy Booster will have 31 Raptors. And this engine is roughly in the same thrust ballpark as the BE-4, but is much volumetrically smaller than a BE-4. And so it's, it's interesting to see how design philosophies 
from the company have worked its way into the production product where they've pretty much always knew they needed to cluster these. And so that is what's driven up the chamber pressure so they can have a very high compression ratio in a very small sized engine, which I think is really interesting. And another big change, which has been to kind of reduce risk and iterate quickly, is instead of having C-level optimized Raptors and yeah. vacuum optimized Raptors yeah. like Merlin has currently, the first flights of the first generation of Starship will have a single engine. And so it is kind of a middle ground compromise that's built towards speed. Right. So there's another design aspect that I think we've touched on before about Raptor that makes it an impressive uh, engine to follow the development of. And that's, um, it's a full fuel flow engine design. Is that correct? Yeah. So the Merlin rocket family uses a gas generator cycle, which means a portion of the fuel and oxidizer that would be going through the thrust chamber and the nozzle gets bled off, burned in a gas generator, which is turning the, it's turning the fuel into high pressure gases to spin a turbine pump, which then allows for a higher uh, inlet pressure into the engine to produce the high levels of thrust needed. And as an aside here, Electron's rocket, instead of using fuel to drive those turbines, it uses electric power to drive those turbines. And from there on, it's the same. With a gas generator cycle, a portion of fuel and oxidizer is bled off to be burned to spin a turbine and then is for all intents and purposes, dumped. With a stage combustion cycle, a portion of the fuel and oxidizer is bled off into the pre-burner and then put back into the combustion chamber. But the majority of the fuel or the oxidizer will go directly into the combustion chamber without going through a pre-burner. In a full flow stage combustion cycle, all of the fuel and all of the oxidizer will go through a pre-burner before going into the combustion chamber. So the interesting thing is that this is a fundamentally different architecture than Merlin. So it's a different engine. It's not an iteration of Merlin. And we've known that it's this type of engine for a long time. What makes me cautiously excited about Raptor is whether or not the hype that I feel and that I, I see on places like Reddit and Twitter are justified or will this change spacex's launch capabilities in a drastically different way i mean so like from a excitement perspective raptor is an entirely new type of engine it's a new rocket family and i think it's really exciting to see a version of raptor that's going to take flight and not just be used on a test stand uh, we saw the subscale Raptor test. We've seen development firings of Raptors, but this is going to fly even if it's only to 5,000 meters, um, which is a big step. There are many, many rocket engines designed and built that only get fired once or they never leave the test stand. So that's mm -hmm. a significant milestone in itself. Another way to look at it is that this flight version of Raptor that we're seeing is kind of like the Merlin 1A, which all the way back in 2008 was a very different engine to the Merlin 1D Plus that flies on Falcon 9 today. 
When the Merlin 1A had an, a blade of nozzle, it had a third-party turbo pump created by Barbara Nichols. It had much less performance than the Merlin 1C or 1D. And so keeping that in mind, the Raptor family of engines has an immense opportunity to grow and mm-hmm. diversify and prove itself. Right. Not in the next couple of years, but the next 20 years. Right. If you look at some of the established rocket engine families, Merlin's one of the newest, but something like the RL-10, which has been flying on Centaur for 50 plus years, and how that's evolved and the things it's been able to accomplish iterating over time. Raptor right now is at a very high bar, but it also has the potential to become something that we we can't really even kind of comprehend right now. Three three hundred bar in particular. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, do you mind if we speculate a little bit more? Sure. What do you think is going to be the bottleneck? So Raptor's development is maturing, test firing for Hopper. The Starship Hopper was constructed and looks about as far along as the Grasshopper prototype in, you know, less than a month, just over a month, thereabouts. What do you think is going to be the bottleneck? I it's it's hard to say. So much has changed and the number of prior models to compare to is either very low or zero that you really can't make a reasonable educated guess. You're right. We saw the grasshopper tests and then the the Falcon 9 R dev tests. And even then that was flight like hardware. You know, those engines have been flying into orbit. Those the manufacturing process to build those tanks have been flying into orbit. And with Starship Hopper, nothing like that's flown. Uh, so just from a structural perspective, all new technology. I think we've already encountered the schedule slipper, the roadblocks in Raptor, and we're now on the God knows what iteration, right? Because Raptor is scaled up, it has scaled down, it was going to have vacuum optimized, silo optimized. So I think they've jumped through a lot of those hurdles to find the one we're at. And I wouldn't be surprised to see the first orbital Starship Hopper test and the first full super heavy Starship booster flying with engines that look basically like the engine we saw on Twitter. So I think the risk in that area is relatively low. But even with Merlin 1D that had been flown dozens of times, but when they came down to qualifying for crew, there's issues with the turbo pumps and reusing them. I think the qualifying for reuse is going to be a challenge for everything from the full vehicle, the structure, the engines. And that's something where you have to launch into space and have it come back and then inspect it. And even further to rate it for human spaceflight. Exactly. Uh, you know, SpaceX has experience in recovering flight proven hardware and inspecting it uh, more so than any other company. But those challenges are still still there and they still have to be taken on head on. Mm-hmm. So it is definitely difficult. It's difficult to predict, right? You can say a lot of, you can assume a lot of risks have been mitigated in their design choices. Uh, you know, a methane oxygen engine doesn't have the coking issues that a Merlin has, 
but there could be completely different issues, right? And so that's just what happens when you're doing these kinds of serious research and development. You have a lot of you have a lot of unknowns. You have a lot of potential risks, but it really comes down to can the engineering team that you have working on the problem take in all the data and all the experiments, all the tests, and keep making progress. And I, what I will say is that SpaceX has proven that their, their R&D team doesn't slow down. So seeing a Methalox engine on a test stand reminded me of another Methalox engine on a test stand. BE-4 is being sold as a, a component in another rocket design. For SpaceX, they could, you know, could in imaginary land, fantasy land, sell Merlins or Raptors to someone else to build their rocket. Maybe someone wants to build a single engine Raptor Methalox rocket rather than having 31 on a BFR. They just, they just want one engine. Would it make sense for SpaceX to sell their engines and things that can be separate from the integrated system to third parties as an additional revenue stream? I don't think so. I'll tell you why. I think the primary reason Blue Origin is selling BE-4s to ULA for their Vulcan is that Blue Origin's rocket requires seven BE-4s, and they're trying from the get-go to be reusable. And that means the demand for those engines is going to be very low, the amount of units that they need to produce. And that means the research and development, the creation of the assembly line, and maintaining the assembly line, those costs are going to be very high. And so to have a second customer that is going to be expending those engines for the foreseeable future until smart reuse potentially becomes a thing means that they can keep the throughput through that assembly line higher and that reduces the cost for them. SpaceX doesn't have that issue because they're using a common engine across both stages and the first stage has 31 engines. And so they're already going to be in high volume production. They're going to become their own customer and SpaceX doesn't want to build one Starship and Super Heavy. They don't want to build 10. They're going to produce Raptor and Raptor derivative launch vehicles for the next 10, 15 years at least. And so I don't think it makes business sense because they already have the volume scheduled in as part of their architectural plans when it does make sense to build an extra five or 10 engines a year for a third party from Blue Origin's perspective. Thank you for answering my question. Very well said. And you make very valid points to which I have no counter argument. Okay, that's all I had. Is there anything else that happened recently that you'd like to talk about? So much stuff happened recently, but we got to shave that for the episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to future episodes and tell your friends. You can check out past episodes and blog posts, including interviews with key space personas like Tori Bruno or Chris Hadfield, in-depth articles on spacecrafts and rockets, as well as our recent commentary on current events in the space industry. Also, let us know what you think of the show. Leave a review on iTunes or your podcast service of choice, or reach out to us via Twitter at SpexCast or by email at specscast at gmail.com. Our music is by Nelson Scott.